You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. We are coming up on the two-year mark of when we here in the United States first heard of COVID. And in the span of those two years, no matter your individual feelings about the virus, we can all unite in saying that it has changed our lives in so many ways. Likely one of the strongest effects the virus has had on people, though, is the one we rarely talk about, the mental strain. I'd wager that we have felt more tired, burnt out at work. We've been shorter with our kids. Our patience is almost shot, and for many, the pain has gone even deeper. According to an article in the Harvard Gazette, senior lecturer at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Richard Wiseboard, helped lead a research study into the far-reaching effects of social isolation across various age groups. While he found that nearly every category experienced an increase in loneliness, Older teens and young adults seemed hit hardest. At the very times in their lives when they're making crucial decisions about schooling, about career moves, about their families, the times when we most recall relying on older adults and our families for guidance, they felt alone in making their decisions. But interestingly, one of the most significant effects on feelings of loneliness had to do with people feeling that they themselves were trying to reach out to friends and loved ones, to show care, to listen, but that no one was doing that for them in return, which can create a vicious cycle. We've all experienced something like this before. You try so hard and want nothing more than for others to show even half the effort that you've been showing. Not feeling that effort from others can feel so defeating. Now, I want you to imagine having that feeling not for two years, but for nearly 25. And having that feeling not about things like work performance or friend relationships, but in the search for a missing loved one. Imagine that kind of loneliness, and you'd have some idea of what Stephanie Ellis has been feeling for decades in her fight to figure out, along with only one or two other family members, what happened to her two-year-old nephew all those years ago. This is the case of Reuben David Felix. Welcome to Coffee and Cases, where we like our coffee hot and our cases cold. 
My name is Allison Williams. And my name is Maggie Dameron. We will be telling stories each week in the hopes that someone out there with any information concerning the case will take those tips to law enforcement so justice and closure can be brought to these families. With each case, we encourage you to continue in the conversation on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, and to follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast. Because as these families know, conversation helps to keep their missing family member in the public consciousness, helping to keep their memories alive. So sit back, sip your coffee, and listen to what's brewing this week. Allison, before we get started today, I have something I have to say. Okay. We are, so we are officially only four weeks away from the launch of our Patreon. Oh my gosh, I'm pumped for you guys to hear what we have recorded. Ah! And you know what? Speaking of Patreon, I don't know if you saw this, Maggie, but one of our followers on Instagram, Engineer Kenzie, which sounds super official, I like the name, asked when the Patreon was starting. And, you know, her excitement just mingled with my excitement. And I just can't wait until we can share with the world the many episodes that we have created so far. And Maggie, should we share with everybody what that Patreon will look like and what our Sleuthhounds will get? Well, I hadn't seen her comment on Instagram, but now I have to go look at it here in a minute. So now your excitement (laughs) is mingled with ours. (laughs) Yes. So if you crave some closure for some of our cases, if you're curious about like our take on some of the more popular cases there are out there, or if you just need a really good laugh, our Patreon is exactly what you need in your life. We'll be posting about three to four mini episodes a month around like 15 to 20 minutes in length um, over like a range of topics. Once we get to 100 patrons, um, we'll be releasing a full length episode a month. And I can tell you guys that the first one Allison has picked is a crazy one. Yes, it is. And (laughs) because we are launching Patreon on December 16th, it is right in time. For you to give yourself a little Christmas gift. So you can have. I know. I mean, I'm feeling the Christmas spirit. And you will have more content to listen to on your drive or your plane flight to see relatives or while you're wrapping Christmas gifts. Yes. While you are wrapping Christmas joy, I should say. <laughs> and a Patreon membership is also the perfect gift and budget friendly gift. For a true crime-loving friend or colleague. Or yourself. And at only $5 a month for the first 100 subscribers, it's a price you can't beat. For that $5, you'll get immediate access to three mini-episodes, with two more to be released in the final two weeks of December. You'll get a shout-out on the show. This level will become $8 a month after the first 100 sign up. So make sure you are marking your calendars to be one of the first ones to save those extra bucks. That's like a coffee from McDonald's. So tis the season for the thrill of Christmas saving. (laughs) And like Maggie mentioned, once we reach 100 patrons, we will release our first full length bonus episode then. And after that, each month, 
will include a minimum of one full episode and three mini episodes. If you sign up for a higher tier, you'll also receive a card or two from us and discount on merchandise. And if you're on our super sleuth level, you'll receive mine and Allison's eternal love. Yes. Which isn't hard to earn because we're pretty loving people. But (laughs) (laughs) anyway, but also never fear because nothing here is going to change. Maggie and I will still be here every week on your favorite podcasting app with our cases as normal trying to spread the word about lesser known cases to help these families as much as we possibly can. And with that said, let's get into this week's case. Maggie, this case is similar to a few that I've covered in the past where there just isn't very much information that's been shared publicly or even with the family about the case. Hmm. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I think I found seven total articles written about this case. And it happened on February 23rd, 1997. And it's the case of a missing child. Wow. So I feel like there should be a lot more information. One would think. And so there are a lot of factors in it that make me wonder if that's why we didn't hear as much about it. That is why I'm here today telling you, Maggie, and you, Sleuth Hounds, his story, and hoping that maybe with all of us talking about the case and pushing for coverage, his family can finally get the information out there, and we can finally gain more information potentially about his case through that attention. Okay. I had the pleasure this week of speaking with Ruben's aunt, Stephanie, who was able to give me much more insight into the case than I was able to get from, you know, my seven. Yeah, your seven articles. articles. Yeah. And she was also able to give me her kind of personal feelings and perspective about what happened. Okay. And after speaking with her and hearing the pain of loss that's still in her voice, I knew Like always, when I speak with families, Mm -hmm. this is one of those cases. It's kind of like the Cecil Gaddy case, where even though there isn't a whole lot of information, I just feel compelled to tell the story. Like, I feel like I have to help spread the word because I can't stand the idea of somebody feeling like he or she is fighting alone. That's what I was about to say. Like, your intro, we want all of these families to know that we're fighting with them. Mm Mm-hmm. So here is Ruben's story. So we are, Maggie, this week in the gym state. Any guesses as to where that is? The gym state. Don't Google it. Is it like Washington, Oregon, California? (laughs) Like, I don't know. I feel like it's like the West Coast somewhere. It is Idaho. What the heck? I would have never in my life have guessed Idaho. I feel like that's the corn state. (laughs) I know. Listen, I just think of potatoes. But I I asked you that because. That's the tater state. The tater state. (laughs) I was 
I was, you know, I think we should do a, a Patreon mini episode where I quiz you on state nicknames. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> feeling. And I've never been to Idaho. I haven't really been out west. Um, but I looked at pictures of the town Shoshone, where we are this week, which is not to be confused with the Native American tribe Shoshone, but the town oh. of Shoshone is the largest city in Lincoln County, the largest okay. city, and has today around 1,500 residents. Oh, okay. So, um, like, the size of the high school that's up the road for me, but right. okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's about, I guess, no, our high school's larger than that, probably. Yeah. No, it might be, it might be probably a little bit same. less than that. Yeah. 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 Most who go to this little quaint town of Shoshone go there to do a walking tour of the ice caves. I want to go. I know. It sounded so cool. I was looking at it. It was like this thousand foot long lava cave with ice oh. formations. And it they stay frozen all year. Like it stays below yeah. zero in its temperatures, even when the temperature like right above on the streets is in the 90s. Yeah, that's how Mammoth Cave is in Kentucky. Mm -hmm. It's the same temperature year round, but there's no icicles. I want to now. I need yeah. to go to Idaho. Yep, you need to go to the Gem State, <laughs> not the Tater State. Yeah, but this was also the place where a two-year-old little boy, Reuben David Felix, went missing in broad daylight and surrounded by people. A fact that shockingly. Many, even those from such a small town, have never heard about. Like they've never heard about Ruben? His story. Yeah. There's you would only think a thousand a town, people in their town. I know. And you would think in a town that small, at least they would know. Yeah, like everybody so, would be talking about it. Right. And so that's why it, it, I just feel it's shocking that people aren't talking about his case, even in the small town. So I asked Stephanie to tell me a little bit about Ruben's childhood, his personality, you know, information that, well, it's normally lacking in the research, but was obviously mm -hmm. noticeably lacking in the research on this particular case. And Ruben's mother, Rosanna Felix Morellis, who is now Rosanna Scott, had Ruben with Jose Rojas when she was very young. Stephanie believes that Rosanna may have been as young as 12 when she was pregnant with Reuben. That's literally how old the little people are that I teach. And I cannot yes. imagine any of them birthing a child. Yeah. And I, I bring this up because, well, that doesn't mean that Rosanna couldn't be a good mom because of her age. There are many life lessons that often kind of go into parenting and she was mm -hmm. literally a baby having a baby right and she wanted in her life actually maggie to have lots of babies stephanie said that rosanna used to say her goal was to have as many children as she has letters in her name so that wow. she could spell out her name rosanna so she had reuben omar sabrina esperanza and so on did she I meet mean, her goal that I don't know. I should have asked, but I didn't. <laughs> and I mean, I get that being your goal, maybe if you had a short name like Amy, 
Yeah. <laughs> a long name like Rosanna or Stephanie or something yeah. like that. You're birthing babies for a long time. Mm -hmm. So when Rosanna was pregnant with Reuben, she actually didn't let anyone know. It wasn't until her mom, Peggy Salas, walked into the bathroom when Rosanna was in the shower that Peggy saw her stomach and knew. So I don't know if she was planning on hiding it until, Re I mean, obviously she would show up one day with Reuben. You know, so. there, I've heard of a lot of girls, though, like, I can particularly think of a girl that was in high school at a different high school close to where I went, like, at the same time, and she went into labor playing a basketball game. Like, that's how <gasps> well she hid that she was pregnant. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, like, on the gym court, her water broke. Oh, my goodness. I can't yeah. imagine. Wow. So. I mean, I guess she was trying to hide it, but, you know, Peggy saw her stomach and Reuben's father soon left the picture. Was he, he also a baby? Like I don't know his age. Okay. Um, because, he, well, he left the picture fairly quickly. Okay. Um, I think Stephanie said she believes he's now in California okay. and Rosanna began a relationship with Aurelio Morellis. And Stephanie continued to reiterate throughout our conversation that Rosanna was a good mother to Reuben when she was around. Mm -hmm. However, probably partly because of her age and the immaturity, you know, that often comes with that age, yeah. she often wasn't around. So she would leave family members like Stephanie and Rosanna's mom, Peggy, to care for Reuben the majority of the time. Well, like you said, she's a baby having a baby. So, mm -hmm. And it was the two of them, Stephanie and Rosanna's mom, Peggy, who would watch Reuben. Stephanie actually called Reuben's middle name is David. And she said that they called him Davy baby, Aww. which I think is so cute. Yeah. And Stephanie said that he had just this sweet happy-go-lucky disposition and that he loved music like she said he would often dance around um, one of her last memories she had taken him to see like all these different bands and he just loved music and like you know bopping his little body yeah. around to the music and Peggy and Stephanie actually cleaned houses together she said like seven or eight a day and because they were caring for Reuben they would often like bring him with them when they were cleaning the houses and she said he would play clean, too. Like, he loved Aww. to dust. Because he, he just loved to be a helper. So, I guess they'd give him, like, a little duster. And he'd, like, walk around, you know, like he's helping them dust things. Cutie. And I know. I can just picture him doing it. Stephanie said that Peggy kept Reuben busy. Like, playing, uh, pretend helping. <laughs> um, because she had him most of the time. And... That Rosanna would keep Reuben sometimes, but again, maybe because of her age, I'm not trying to excuse anything, you know, like, yeah. but I'm just attempting to explain. She would often leave him in the care of other people. Rosanna then, though, Maggie became pregnant with her second child, Omar, which oddly means firstborn son even though he wasn't Rosanna's firstborn son because that was Reuben 
But it, I guess it was her firstborn son with Aurelio. And right after Omar was born, Rosanna decided that she was going to take care of Reuben herself and moved him out of Peggy's home where he had, for all intents and purposes, been living. So, so basically, how old is she when she has Omar? Uh, 14. Okay. And so Reuben had basically been living with his grandma, with Rosanna's mm-hmm. mom, for the majority of his life. And, you know, with Peggy and others, you know, raising him. But when Rosanna had her second son, two years later, she decided, nope, I want Reuben to come stay with me. And moved him out of Peggy's home. But Maggie, I if she knew like Omar means firstborn son, or like if that's just a really crazy coincidence. I don't know. And then I keep going back to that whole like, I mean, she did want to spell out her name, and obviously an O is right. his first letter. You know, right? But you could Oscar, right? Oliver, something, right? I know, but only a couple of weeks. After Rosanna took Reuben back, Reuben was gone. Hmm. On February 23rd, 1997, Reuben's stepdad, Aurelio's family, was holding a farewell barbecue for Aurelio's brother, who was going back to Mexico that same day. So the whole family was there to wish him well. Like adult siblings were there, cousins, their children, like lots of people came to the Tanupa Ranch for this barbecue. Okay. And even though I couldn't find the exact temperature in Shoshone that day, I tried (laughs) just to see. I did see that the average temperature in February is around 30 degrees. Right, like, I feel like when you say barbecue, I picture, like, the summer. I know. I do, too. Yeah, I do, too. You should be eating, like, soup when it's 30 degrees in February. Right, yeah. Let's have a chili get-together. Yeah. Instead of a barbecue. But they had this barbecue, and which I think really just means, for like, grilling meat. Okay, gotcha. You know, um... But despite, you know, the average temperatures, a lot of the members of the family were outside while the kids, like around four to six kids, were all playing in the yard. Which, I mean, you know, I mean, I think about it. And as a kid, I'd be out oh, yeah. playing. I mean, it wouldn't yeah. matter the temperature. We put like you know? socks on our hands at my grandma's house when it yeah. would get really cold so we could go play. <laughs> yeah, just whatever you had to do, you mm-hmm. do. Stephanie was actually out of town when the barbecue happened. but. She recalled to me that she had always been told that there were several adults who were outside with the children and that there was actually like a gate up on the property because there was a river nearby, like 200 yards away. There was a gate up. So it wasn't like the children would be able to get very far, you know, and if, if one of them tried, it would be noticeable. Okay. Sometime in the early afternoon, most of the sources that I read, the newspaper articles actually stated around 4 p.m., but Stephanie remembers it being earlier than that. Everyone went back inside. 
I don't know if the meat was done and they were all going to eat or for whatever reason. But around early afternoon, everybody went back inside except for Reuben. He was just nowhere. Like, like just vanished? Gone. Yeah. And no one said they saw anything. I don't know that I really believe that. Yeah, I I feel like I would notice a two-year-old I mean, toddling right. away. Like, I feel like somebody would have had to have noticed. Like, when I am out in public, even if they're not my children, I'm like watching to make sure they don't run into the side, like off the sidewalk or, you know, like one time we were at a store in downtown and this little boy's like literally two probably just ran out the front door of this department store, like right at the road and his like people were nowhere. And so like, I just grabbed his, like took his little hand and walked him back inside and like, I was like, where's your mommy or daddy? And then like, finally somebody came up and got him. Wow. So, like, I feel like we watch little babies. Yeah. Most people do. You're right. I mean, I do the same thing because Rodney and I will be somewhere and we'll see a kid. And I'm like, where is that child's parent? I always say that. I'm like, where's your mommy? Like, in my head, I'm like, where's your mommy? Right. <laughs> where is your caretaker? Who is yeah. watching this child? <laughs> I know. But... It wasn't until, so this happens early afternoon. Again, Stephanie remembers it being earlier. A lot of the news reports said around 4, but it wasn't until around 6.15 p.m. that Peggy, remember that's Rosanna's mom, she'd been taking care of Ruben for most of his life, got home from work to her telephone ringing. It was Rosanna on the other end of the line saying, he's gone, he's gone. He's gone. Reuben is gone. By her tone, Peggy thought, like, this has just happened. Right, yeah. But it was also just moments later that she had found out that he hadn't just gone missing. Yeah, He'd but surely somebody had like, oh, okay, no, never mind. <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. What were you going to say? I was like, surely somebody called the police. <laughs> um, never no. mind. No, they hadn't. And he had been missing for hours. And I mean, okay, I get looking around first, like making sure he's not just hiding, you know, Mm -hmm. under a bed or playing hide and seek or something before calling. But I feel like the younger the child, the quicker I'd call. Yeah. Personally. And there also might have been some hesitancy to call the police because many of the family members were illegal immigrants. Yeah, but I feel like that's a baby. So, like, if I was in a country illegally with my family and a baby went missing, like, I would be like, I'm leaving so you can call the police or you can call the police and, like, I'll get deported, but we have to find this baby. I know, but I'm, I'm, I agree with you. I also understand why that easily could have been a factor in their failure to call, but I'm with you. I, I wish someone did because first of all, so much happens in those precious hours. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you that in most every potential scenario, 
while obviously you feel self-preservation at Mm. some point, especially for a child, I personally would care more about a child's safety than whether or not I'm going to face consequences. Yeah. And that is like a really hard predicament to be in, I guess, because, you Mm -hmm. know, maybe some of the people that were there illegally also had children. Then you're like pulling a parent away from their child potentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just a really yucky situation for both everybody involved. Yes. And when law enforcement was finally called, they searched the Tanupa Ranch and didn't find any clues. There was nothing in the yard or in the building that would seem to indicate where Reuben might have gone. What about the, like, river that was on the property? Could he have been washed away in that? We're going to get to that. That is one potential theory. So, two-year-old Reuben and the bottle that he had been drinking out of at the time were gone. Stephanie relayed that, like you just said, Maggie, just a short distance away lay the canal the Littlewood River, according to my research. And the police, when they did finally investigate, became convinced that Reuben had somehow gotten out of the yard, walked to an outbuilding, across a potato field, up a little hill or embankment or whatever you want to call it, gone across the railroad tracks, and then walked down a pasture to the river's edge, where he then, they theorized, fell in. Sometimes it is very frustrating when police, like, are so set on one theory. I feel like they miss so many potential clues or, like, things that could point them in another direction just because they're convinced something happened. And I I do kind of feel like that's what happened in this case. Um, Now, when I described, though, that distance that they believe he walked, it sounds like it's really far away, but Stephanie actually told me it was actually pretty close. It's like 200 yards or something, I mean, which is still like two football fields. So that's still, you know, a significant walk for a two-year-old whose legs are like, you know, inches long. Yeah. (laughs) But I just, I still find it very hard to fathom. That Reuben could have walked that distance with how long it would have taken, you know, a two-year-old to do that. And over those obstacles. Yes, that's what I was about to say. Yeah. Like, when you're two, you've only been walking for, like, a year of your life. You're still a toddler. You toddle. Right. So, like, I can't imagine him, like, effectively climbing over railroad ties and through potato fields without, like falling i feel like that would be a very long journey for a two-year-old yeah and remember there's a gate blocking the path to the river so that makes this belief of reuben getting there undetected seem way more crazy to me yes but the police believe that that is what happened that reuben wandered off by himself all the way to the river and they believe that maggie because of two reasons Number one, police brought in scent dogs that trace Reuben's scent to and across each of those places that I mentioned, and the scent stopped at the river. Okay, but, okay, one, just because they traced his scent does not mean he walked that. Someone could have been carrying him. Mm -hmm. Two, if it stopped at the river, can dogs smell, let's say... 
they were like they waded across the river or they were picked up by somebody on the river would the dogs be able to follow the scent on water i don't know that yeah but then i'm thinking about like crystal rogers Mm -hmm. and there's like that one documentary that's on like amazon oh yeah the dogs are on the boat and they do like an alert to something on the water so maybe they can maybe well we want to know sleuth hounds so if you know let us know yes but the number two reason that the police believed this river theory is because at the river police noticed a single footprint on the ground by the riverbank that looked the size of like a toddler's foot okay that doesn't mean he got there by himself right or even that it was his right Due to those reasons, Stephanie said that law enforcement wouldn't even entertain any other possible scenario. Once law enforcement did zone in on the river, though, Maggie, they brought in divers who found nothing. They drug the river no fewer than five times and found nothing. And, like, is this a... Because I'm thinking, like, the river that runs through Pikeville. On normal days, I don't think that the current is very strong. So I wonder if this was, like, you know, he would have been washed, like, miles away. Like, I wonder how strong the current is on this little river. Well, I think that's an excellent question, Maggie. I'm not sure about the current on the river, but I do know that the Little Wood River, even though it's called Little, it's not so little. It's like a 130-mile-long river that flows through Idaho. So because of that, because of these kind of seeming clues that are near the river, that's kind of where the scenario comes from. But yet, here they are diving. Here they are dragging it, and they're finding nothing. And so if if that's where Reuben had wandered, Stephanie questioned, then why did they find nothing at all? Right. The problem is, Stephanie felt at times that she and Reuben's grandmother, Peggy, were the only ones searching. She like said not that the it, mom? Right. She said that it felt so surreal to her that in the months and years that followed Reuben's disappearance that the rest of the family would speak of Reuben as if he were fine like searching for him and for clues didn't consume them the way it did Stephanie and Peggy like they didn't even talk about him like he had passed away we're just talking about him like he's on vacation that's the impression I got as the way many of the family members spoke about Reuben. And the one detail that kind of stuck with Stephanie is that in the aftermath, she said that they would just let their children play in the yard unattended. Meanwhile, Stephanie and Peggy's whole lives changed. Like, they never stopped talking about Ruben and telling a story, and they supervised their children even more closely. And I feel like that's what I would do. Yeah, like if a kid, if I was at a park and a kid went missing from this park at the same time I was there, like, one, I don't think I would ever take my children back to that park. And if I did, like, they would be on a leash. 
Like those backpacks yeah. with the leash. Yeah. Like I, in my childhood, I was at a family reunion. I think I've told you this. I still to this day am terrified of fireworks. Because I don't think you've told me this. Oh, well, we were at a family reunion. We were setting off fireworks and um, they were putting them in a canister so that they mm-hmm. would shoot up high in the air. And one of my younger cousins and another cousin who was in from California um, wanted to go play across the road where they were setting off the fireworks and like in this field. And I was standing right next to the young boy's mom. And she was like, okay, but find your dad, like, let him know that you're over there. And he was like, okay, I will. And so they went over across the field to play. And all of a sudden we're there watching the fireworks go off. And we see that there's a fire across the road. And I remember somebody like joking and they were like, oh my gosh, they can't even set off fireworks without, you know, a catastrophe Uh or something. And then because the fire was still going, I remember seeing like a shadow of people, like a line walking back across the road toward us and somebody was carrying something. Oh. It was that four-year-old cousin from California was what he was carrying because the firework the canister tipped over as the firework was going on <gasps> and it had exploded right beside his head. <sighs> and I was standing right next to his mom and they rushed him to the hospital. I believe cause I, I was young at the time. Also I was like 12 and I believe they flew him to UK And they performed brain surgery, but they couldn't save him. Oh, my God. And to this day, like, I can watch professionals set off fireworks, Mm -hmm. like, in a distance. But with my little sleuth hound, I'm like, you can have sparklers and those little snappy things, and that's it. Yeah. And, And because of going through trauma... I, I feel like your perspective on everything having to do with whatever that trauma was related to changes. Mm-hmm. And the trauma of losing Reuben meant something to Stephanie and Peggy, like something deeper than it seemed to mean for other people in the family. Including Reuben's father, who Stephanie said didn't have anything to do with searching for him. Wow. Reuben's stepfather who didn't have anything to do with searching for him. And even at times, Reuben's mother, Rosanna, who was hesitant to call the police to find out information. And I mean, here's Stephanie, who she recalled that she even spent her honeymoon putting up missing posters for Reuben. Stephanie began combing the land too on the Tanupa ranch looking for clues which that reminded me of um Christy Cornwell's brother remember him walking his lines like looking for his sister that's what it reminded me of Stephanie and 
the few others in the family who were helping search. They would place little flags in the ground so they would know. I thought that was super smart. So they would know where they'd already looked, Mm -hmm. right? So they're not like wasting time looking in the same spot. About a month after Reuben disappeared, a clue was found. Finally. Oh. Because, you know, here we are a month, like nobody's finding anything. So Stephanie told me that one of the little girls who had been outside playing with Reuben that February day held something up in her hand and yelled, I found his bottle. Oh. Yeah. But instead of feeling elated, Stephanie actually felt quite the opposite emotion, Maggie. Well, like, is she, like, just out in the, like, is it out in, like, a the potato field or, like, just out no. in the yard? And that, that's part of the reason why Stephanie wasn't, like, excited and more confused. She stated to me that... In this moment, the whole thing to her felt staged, Mm -hmm. especially when she realized that the spot that the little girl claimed she had just found the bottle was right beside of a flag in the ground. And remember, they used the flags to show the areas that they looked. Yes. And that bottle, according to Stephanie, was never sent to the police nor the FBI for testing. And instead, it sat in Rosanna's home on top of the fridge after it was found. That's strange to me. Mm-hmm. Me too. And speaking of staged, Stephanie also feels a personal conviction that the footprint by the river was also staged. hmm Because she mused, how can a child that young... Why is there only young, one? Yeah. A child that young isn't going to erase his own footprints, right? So how are there no footprints leading up to the river and only one at the river? And I wonder if it was like with his shoes or like his actual foot, like toes and all. You know what I just thought of when you said that? So if scent dogs smell a piece of clothing to follow a person. Mm -hmm. If someone took just a piece of clothing, like if they, if somebody just took off his shoe, say, Mm -hmm. and carried it all those places to the river and just kind of touched it down on the mud, would the dog still trace Reuben's scent because they were carrying his shoe? We need to know answers to these questions, listeners. Someone has to know these answers. Someone who trains scent dogs. Yeah, we're like works in law enforcement. We need to know. We need a specialist. And sadly, there hasn't been much new information since. There were people who called after seeing the missing posters that Stephanie had posted, but none of them panned out to be Reuben. And I have only one final detail to share. Before I give you some theories. Okay. Several years after Ruben disappeared, Rosanna received a phone call from someone who claimed he was Victor Grant, an agent with the FBI. He told Rosanna that he had found out information about Ruben's whereabouts, that he had actually traced Ruben 
to Guadalajara, Mexico. Wow. He relayed to her his belief that Ruben had been sold to a wealthy family there and had urged Rosanna to drive to Twin Falls, Idaho, where the FBI office was located, to speak with him. And Rosanna did. So could it have possibly been, like, the family member that's going back to Mexico kidnap Ruben to take him to this rich family? That's another theory we're going to talk about, Maggie. You're getting good at this. Thank you. You're getting good at guessing the theories before the theories. (laughs) So Rosanna did decide to go. But when Rosanna arrived, she was told that Agent Grant had retired. So he couldn't have called her. And that Ruben's case had actually been cold for the previous six years. That no one from the office had called her. Unless, like, this Agent Grant called from, like, his personal home and had been, like, kind of figuring this out on his free time. But then why would he have her meet him at the FBI office and not be there? True, true. And it's because of that phone call that many in Ruben's family, including Stephanie, believe that that, that Ruben was sold to a wealthy family in Mexico, is exactly what happened to Ruben. Which, again, is a theory that law enforcement has yet to seem willing to entertain. Hmm. So let's visit the various theories quickly, and then I'll ask what you think is most likely. Okay. First... That Reuben drowned in the river. The river was only 200 yards away from where he had been playing. So it's fairly close. Yeah. Had he fallen in the river, his body could have been carried away in the current. Especially with it being hours before anyone began to call or a true search began. To play devil's advocate... Shouldn't someone have seen him walking away? Right. How were there no other footprints leading to the river? And how did he get past the gate? Right. Like, how did he do all these things that were, like, really impossible for a two-year-old to do? Right. Second theory. And this is where I would normally say Reuben was abducted by a stranger. I want to bring it up because obviously there is a remote possibility. At the same time, I feel like I can't even fully argue this possibility in good conscience because where the barbecue was is too rural. You know, it's not like it's in a public place in a big city where, you know, there's all kinds of strangers passing by. And it was all family who were present. So I feel like they would have noticed if a stranger is also appearing in their midst. Mm -hmm. And the final theory is that someone in Aurelio's family sold Ruben to a family in Mexico as the, air quote, FBI agent had told Rosanna. Stephanie and I actually were talking about that phone call, and I asked her, I said, you know, do you think that maybe whoever did make the phone call was someone who knew the truth and they were trying to, like, clear their conscience, you know, by pretending to be somebody saying, I've got this insider information. And she said that she absolutely agrees with that statement. That's exactly what Hmm. she thinks it was. 
Stephanie went on to tell me that, and this is, again, obviously this wasn't in any of the newspaper articles. This is her recollection, but I wanted to share it. She went on to tell me that Aurelio's brother, the one that they were hosting the barbecue for, the one who went back to Mexico the same day that Ruben disappeared, that when he came back to the U.S., he had a new car, had money for other family members to purchase new cars, Hmm. and had money for his family to put down on a business. Like, what feels strange to me about this, like, I feel like in a developing nation, it would probably be relatively easy to buy a child. Mm -hmm. So why did it have to be Reuben that this rich family wanted to purchase? That's a good question. Some other questions, too. I mean, again... On the other hand, like, the money could have come from some other means. Right. Right, that Aurelio's brother. Yeah, could have been coincidence that he left the same day Ruben disappeared. Right. And so, those are the theories. What are your thoughts? What's your gut telling you? I mean, out of all three of those, I go feel like the final theory is kind of where my gut says Mm -hmm. like what my gut says happened i don't even know though if i'm 100 percent sold on the that even that last theory right like i do definitely think it had to be somebody that was at this part this barbecue that took this kid Mm -hmm. i just don't know what their purpose in taking him was right i think i'm with you i lean more toward Ruben being sold to another family than either of the other two explanations. Mm -hmm. My gut, I keep sticking on the fact that Rosanna's second son got the name Omar, meaning firstborn son. Mm -hmm. And again, I get that it's part of it was that she wanted to spell out her name, but it still bothers me. I also keep dwelling on the fact that Mexico has one of the highest rates of human trafficking on the globe. And so, like, this theory that he would be sold. Exactly. And I keep coming back to that, quote-unquote, FBI phone call. Because somebody had to have made that call. Right. And that seems an oddly specific detail to give. Yeah, it's like a very big lie to say. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. After Stephanie lost her nephew, her whole world changed. And now she watches her own children with an eagle eye. She taught her daughter at a young age how she should protect herself and not go with strangers. She told her daughter Reuben's story as a cautionary tale. She believes that Reuben is in Mexico and perhaps does not know his true identity but he can recognize a scar he has, a crescent-shaped scar on his right wrist. Is it you? Is it a scar you've noticed on a friend or loved one? The missing posters and age-progressed photos 
show a lightly tan-skinned, handsome man with blue eyes and light brown hair. But that might not be what he looks like. Stephanie used her own children to illustrate her concern over the age progression photos. She said her own son's skin had darkened over time. Reuben's skin tone could be darker, and his eyes may have darkened to hazel or brown. And so she thinks perhaps many are seeing the age-progressed photo, and they're saying, well, that doesn't look like the person I know. The best bet is to focus on the scar and to go from there. Please, sleuth hounds, if you can take a moment, share Reuben's story. It deserves to be heard. It deserves more than seven newspaper articles. If you have friends or family in Mexico, please share this week's episode with them or share the Facebook post on this episode that will be on Facebook next Monday. And Ruben, if you're out there listening, your aunt misses you so very much. Here is her message to you. Is there a message that you would want to either give to our listeners or send out to Ruben if by some miraculous reason he were to hear? Come home, baby, baby. Come home. You know, I hope he had a really good life and I hope that, you know, he comes home. Right. You still have hope. I do. I have a lot of hope for Ruben. I just, I don't want anybody to forget him. Right. How I am found. And his cousins, I'll... I'll talk about him, and we still have birthday parties for him. Mm-hmm. There's still Christmas presents for him that he's never gotten to open. And we want him found. I'm hopeful one day. Me too. Anyone with information about Reuben David Felix's whereabouts or concerning his disappearance, please contact the Lincoln County Sheriff's Office at 208-886-2259. Again, please like and join us on our Facebook page, Coffee and Cases Podcast, to continue the conversation and to see images related to this episode. As always, follow us on Instagram at Coffee Cases Podcast and on TikTok at Coffee and Cases Podcast, or you can always email us suggestions to coffeeandcasespodcast at gmail.com. Please tell your friends about our podcast so that more people can be reached to possibly help bring some closure to these families. Don't forget to rate our show and leave us a comment as well. We hope to hear from you soon. Stay together. Stay safe. We'll We'll see see you you next week. week.